Did you ever wonder what it would be like to be one of the last people on Earth? We're talking ghost town! Who would you see? There's nobody. I mean, there's nobody. Ah! What would you do? Hey, I'm sorry if the end of the world makes me a little nervous. Where would you go? The stars are up ahead! Well, get ready to find out, because the comet is coming into your orbit. Welcome back to Don't Watch This Film, the podcast where we watch some of the worst horror movies in history so that you don't have to. My name is W. Adam Clark. My name is Tia, and I would like to personally thank the patron crew, our lovely Patreons, for whom which we do this, not just for you, but for our normal listeners, but we especially did this one for you because this is the movie that you voted for for the month of March. And I would like to just say thank you for presenting a movie that I'm not entirely sure what the hell it is. <laughs> So what happens is our patrons are given a selection of movies to vote on the start of each month. They have an entire month to vote on the movie, and then that movie gets reviewed the following month. So our movies that were available for voting on in February were Night of the Comet, A Touch of Satan, Reptosaurus, or Death Machine. Out of those four... The one that won by a nearly unanimous landslide was 1984's Night of the Comet. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, patrons, thank you very much. Uh, this is going to be interesting. For those of you who have not yet voted on the current movie poll for the movie we review next month, you got a couple days left, assuming that you're listening to this on release date. Those movies are Forbidden World which is a Roger Corman flick from 1982. Shadow Builder from 1998, which is a Bram Stoker book that is not Dracula. Teeth from 2007. And Birdemic 2 from 2013, which is what happens when a bad movie makes enough money that they want to try making a second bad movie. At the moment, I can tell you at the time of recording, Forbidden World is in the lead. But less than half of the votes are in, so we'll have to wait and see how that goes. However, for today, oh lordy lordy, Night of the Comet. This movie is really unique and confusing to talk about. And not just for what's on screen, although that definitely qualifies. Um, but this is going to be an interesting one to try to give some of the cinema history for and also discuss the film itself. So I hope you guys are strapped in. This one's going to get exciting. And you would think with a name like Night of the Comet, it would be exciting. It would be engaging. You would have something to look forward to. In places you might, maybe. Would, and in other places. <laughs> would you have preferred Teenage Comet Zombies? That was the working title. It doesn't matter. Neither of them have any bearing on what the actual film is actually containing. So, I mean. And, and you are exactly correct. So, what's this movie about, Tia? God, you're asking me. You're asking. I just watched the damn thing, and I still have no idea. There is a comment. There it does comment. come at night. And it does come at night. And that's pretty much where that stops. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. In what I assume is Los Angeles, because they make it very clear that this is Christmas time, 
but there's no snow, there's no cold, there's no jackets, there's no nothing. And there is a section where you can see a California Pacific National Bank, I believe. And also the mall shots are filmed at Sherman Oaks Galleria, so very much Los Angeles. Okay, so that explains why it's, it's you know, it's Christmas time and there's no anything to be seen. Yeah, it's Christmas time and everyone's wearing shorts, yeah. They start with a voiceover narration, like this is going to be some gigantic epic. It, this is definitely epic. Epically bad. 65 million years ago, comets coming back, etc., etc. Then we cut to a, a suburb outside of L.A. They're getting ready for a party. There's news crews that are t uh, talking about it, saying where it's going to be first visible on Earth, etc., etc. And we cut to our main character, who is, I believe, an usher in a theater, who's hosting a comet watch party, because, as you do, especially during Christmas, because God knows you don't have anything else to show, who is very, very into a bullet hell, judo Galaga style arcade game. And this is very important to her personality, so they make sure to linger on it for like the first 10 minutes. She works at the theater and, you know, hates her job, stereotypical, not quite valley girl, but you know where the hell she came from, lead. Well, I mean, honestly, it's supposed to be very specifically valley girl. It's just very early in the valley girl scene. Like, a lot of the specific things that by the late 80s, early 90s you would associate with Valley Girl weren't fully realized in that cultural dynamic yet. But this is very much supposed to be a Valley Girl movie. I understand that, but I mean, they have her as, they have her depicted, if this is Valley Girl, this is proto what Valley Girl was eventually going to become. Absolutely because, it is, yes. Because this is the girl who, like, you know, she plays video games, she is into guns, and whereas you would expect her to be like Princess Vespa in Spaceballs holding the gun out by her uh, tip of her finger saying, I hate guns, that's what you would expect her to act like? She doesn't act like that. I mean, to Moving. be fair, a, lot of them, a large part of the movie involves them going shopping, so it, it still kind of works. Go shopping with Mac-10s. Well, if you have a Mac-10, that's what you take when you go shopping. Moving on. So, um, <laughs> there's a lot of... I, I feel like... I want to give a I want to give an accurate synopsis, but so much is filler, and so much I don't know is plot heavy. So okay, the night of the comet, she doesn't actually go out to watch the comet like everyone else does. Everybody else in the neighborhood's throwing like a part of you know block party and stuff like that. She ends up hooking up with the projectionist in one of the main theater chambers, who I'm just going to refer to as not Michael J. Fox. That's that's that is fair. He is in fact not Michael J. Fox. But he's trying so damn hard. And do we give credit for Brown? Do we give credit for trying? No. no. So the the comet comes. It's about they they say it's about like two o'clock in the morning where they're at where it's supposed to show up. And everybody's outside partying, drinking. You know, news cameras are rolling. The comet comes through, and we fade until the next morning. Morning follows, and there's a really sickly red tint to the air. Everything is coated in this red filter. And it turns out that everybody who was outside during the comet has now turned into a pile of red dust. I call it the cranberry-colored rapture. It was a very cranberry rapture. She survives. The guy she hooks up with survives. You know, not Michael J. Fox. Everyone else is presumed dead or missing because literally you just see piles of clothes on the street. Until... Not Michael J. Fox goes out to go get some uh, movie that he lent out, the film reels, to a friend of his because, you know, 
actual projectionists who care about their job, you know, do that, take film from a theater and loan it out to people. Uh, and... do, do you want me to touch on this one right now with a story or do you want me to wait till we finish the synopsis? Uh, story time. Why not? Okay. First off, I was really excited. You know, the cinema geek in me really loved the fact that the movie that he was lending out was it came from outer space that he mentions is 3d it came from outer space was actually the first movie ever done in 3d by universal and the reels are actually pretty rare by 1980 because the treatment they used ate the celluloid so they're very hard to come by so as a film geek the idea that he had managed to get a hold of a set a set of reels for it came from outer space and was sneaking them off to someone to get pirated copies made like we know 25 years later that shit like that is the only reason why these fucking films are still available they didn't know that necessarily at the time but that thing actually happened and hypothetically allegedly I may in fact have known someone who allegedly worked for a cinema who allegedly would sneak reels out to take them home to burn them overnight if he knew that he also was had to be first in the next day so he allegedly may have made bootleg copies of almost everything that went through that cinema and may have allegedly had those bootleg copies for 10 years allegedly <laughs> You're not saying any names. You know nothing for certain. Certainly not. Certainly didn't watch them in his house. Not at all. But. So, as this guy is buttoning, is zipping up his motorcycle jacket, and I mentioned that because that comes into play later, he le goes to leave the theater when he is accosted by what I can only describe as what someone's interpretation of what a zombie might be if they were high off their ass on cocaine. It um, really does look like a cocaine zombie. I I, I, I I have to go with you on that one. These these are cocaine zombies. Which, I mean, makes sense if you're setting your movie in Los Angeles, I guess. In the mid-80s. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Shit. Our pseudo-protagonist, not Michael J. Fox, ends up... He would have gotten bludgeoned with a wrench, but uh, if you actually watched this sequence, the... Uh, the zombie takes the wrench and hits the sidewalk really, really hard. That poor sidewalk didn't deserve that, my God. Goes and drags his body away, presumably, to eat it. What I find interesting is that this is about 15 minutes in. And we're only 15 minutes in at this point. <laughs> Poster on the wall of the exit to the theater. It is a Clark Gable film. And I, I noticed that when I saw it. Called Red Dust. Do you get it? Have we made this overt enough? Have we stopped being subtle? Poster's actually really nice, though. Our main heroine goes out to see what's going on um, because she doesn't hear anything. She doesn't see anything. Her boss hasn't shown up to work the following day. Yes, she stayed overnight in the theater, which is weird. But, I mean, as you do, you got popcorn, you got soda, you got a sleeping bag. Meh. All she sees are just piles of clothes and red dust piles underneath those clothes. She gets locked out of the movie theater because apparently if you're an opener, you wouldn't have keys to your damn theater. Well, I, she's I, not an opener. She's just, you know. Okay, that's fair. Usher. That's reasonable. Yeah. Okay. The projectionist um, probably had keys, but, you know, him and his favorite sidewalk are now dead. It's interesting because she actually does end up finding said keys and said wrench covered in blood, uh, but no sign of the guy that said he'd pay her 15 bucks for... Yeah. Not for, not for making it, 
with him. But I mean, at least we know what you know her going rate is. I know she got paid to make sure that there was somebody else in the movie theater all night. The fact that they made out while they were both there, I mean, I guess that was for that was for free. But she got paid fifteen bucks to make sure that the projectionist wasn't the only person in the theater all night. Fifteen bucks, which is just a shame. I mean, well, remember, this is nineteen eighty four, fifteen dollars. That's what, like thirty, thirty five bucks today? That's not too bad. That's up. She goes and she finds the keys. She doesn't find her guy, but she finds a motorcycle. Um, in this alley, she also gets accosted by cocaine zombie dude. And one of the things that is shown is that she apparently can take care of herself in a hand-to-hand combat situation, but also is dumb enough to do something like throw away keys, which is A, her source of transportation out of a dangerous situation, and B, something you can, in theory, use to gouge out someone's eyes or at least cause them enough discomfort to push them away, and you throw them away. I'm not saying valid girl trope is valid girl, is good a valid girl trope, but you know. Moving on because oh, and we're jumping ahead about ten minutes because nothing. As she drives around LA, she sees one lone car in the middle of one of the biggest freeways, and that's one thing that even if this was the case, even this ha- would have happened at two o'clock in the morning in the middle of LA. Even if everyone has gone to the Rapture, awesome game. I I would highly recommend it. You would have cars, you would have bicycles, you would have police cars, you would have motorcycles, you would have a lot of metal on the roads causing congestion. Well, They emptied the city out. You would, but that would require a larger budget than this movie had, and that's why they were empty roads. So it cost them less money to empty the roads of Los Angeles than it would have to buy a bunch of used hulks and just shoot them differently. Yes, because you can get a permit to shoot in Los Angeles for a small amount of money, but the roads are closed during that time, which would mean to fill the roads with hulks, you then had to tow all of those cars in or drive all of those cars in after renting all of those cars rather than just the permit. Damn, okay, all right, so... Budget constraints are, are a thing to consider when watching this movie. Yeah. Um, this, this movie, there's a lot of issues that come up with the budget of this movie, and a lot of times that they felt need to get creative to try to come up with zero cost solutions, much like Brick Dust, for why they don't have six thousand extras all over the place in their zombie film, because. This is a zombie film that has six fucking zombies over the course of 90 minutes. He's really not exaggerating. If we see that many, we're fortunate. Yeah. Um, I, I like, I'm, I, after I said six, I actually wanted to check swing and probably make it four. But I, uh, but I think there's like three or four in the last sequence all at once like rapid uh, fire back to back to back. So that's mm-hmm. why I think there's a whole six. Yeah, that actually makes a little bit of sense. Anyways, I'll get into the particulars. For the sake of brevity, girl goes home, grabs her sister, who is still alive because she stayed in a woodshed because a throwaway line at the beginning about how Superman can't see through steel walls 
be clarifies because she's a nerd that it's actually lead apparently has a bearing on this and if you're inside of a steel at the time the comet came over you didn't disintegrate or at least not as quickly point being they go down to the radio station because that's where they assume they're hearing somebody because the dj's voice is still going on when they try to listen um they meet <laughs> i didn't have they end up meeting and i wish i was kidding the actor who portrayed Commander Chakotay from Star Trek Voyager. Robert Beltran, yep. And if you're expecting him to look or act any different than he does in 20 years later in a Star Trek series, you'd know. He <laughs> is such a time capsule, isn't he? Like, he is. He has a little bit of baby fat on him. He's obviously a little bit younger, but 20 years passed, and if you put these sh shots next to one another, you think it's five. So cut to a shady group who knows what's going on, is trying to find a cure because apparently this can be cured. We'll get into that. It doesn't make any sense. I digress. They go through another long sequence of getting captured, having gunfights. If it sounds like I'm skipping through a lot of this and jumping around, it's because the movie does the same damn thing. It does. Um, Badly. <laughs> Cut straight to, you know, going out to his house to see if his family is okay. They're not. We knew that. Going back to getting taken into this facility where they have to rescue some kids because lots of stuff I'll get into later. Then an explosion at the end and they are now shouldering the last vestiges of civilization. And as a result, don't cross the road when there's no damn cars on it. And that's literally what we're ending with. Yeah. That makes sense to you. It didn't make sense to me. Okay. Um, numbers. Let's talk numbers. What oh, numbers do sure. we have to work with? I actually have lots of numbers on this one. So uh, this movie actually came out with a PG-13 rating, which was a relatively new rating when this movie came out in 1984. Let's remember that. Genre was obviously horror. The writer and director of this movie is Tom Eberhardt. If you recognize that name, it is probably from Without a Clue in 1988. Honey, I Blew Up the Kid in 1992, Captain Ron also in 1992, or Rats, R-A-T-Z, in the year 2000. So, this is someone who has done better, but also arguably worse. Producers for this were Andrew Lane and Wayne Crawford, who often have worked together to produce films, such as Valley Girl in 1983 and Servants of Twilight in 1991. The release date for this movie was November 16th, 1984. If that movie sounds familiar to horror fans, if that date sounds familiar to horror fans, that's because Nightmare on Elm Street released November 9th, 1984. This movie had a budget of $700,000. That's You can it. tell. Yeah, you can tell. At a budget of $700,000, which arguably was slightly above normal for a horror movie at the time, but not for one trying to do something on this scale. But it managed to gross $14.4 million in the box office, being a horror movie in theaters concurrently with Nightmare on Elm Street. So this movie made an impression. It was critically lauded when it came out this movie did some good things and then disappears we'll go into that in a little bit 
Uh, the runtime was an hour and 35 minutes. The critical score for, based on uh, Rotten Tomatoes was 79% with an audience score of 58%. Remember, I said at the time that this movie came out, it was very critically lauded. So that's part of the 79%. IMDb gives the movie an aggregate score of 6.4. This movie, as we mentioned, stars Robert Beltran as Hector Gomez. You would most know him from Commander Chakotay from Star Trek Voyager. Also, Hector Gomez, now that I'm saying it out loud, has to be in the top five most stereotypical Hispanic names I have ever heard in my life. Catherine Mary Stewart plays Regina Belmont, the female lead. Um, you would recognize her most likely for, as Maggie Gordon in The Last Starfighter in 1984, or as Gwen Saunders in Weekend at Bernie's in 1989. The secondary female role is played by Kelly Maroney, a favorite of mine, by the way. Uh, she plays Sarah Belmont. You would best remember her as Cindy from Fast Times at Ridgemont High in 1982, or as Allison Parks in Chopping Mall, a movie I'm dying to cover at some point in the near future from 1986. So. Their last names are Belmont. I did not know that before just now. Their last names are Belmont? Yes. Regina and Sarah Belmont. Oh, wow. Oh, God. What could have been? Okay. I'm sorry. As you were. So, would we like to discuss what went wrong in this movie? And I'm going to start with saying, let's discuss what went wrong on screen. Because there's an entirely different story about what went wrong off screen but I feel like they need to be discussed separately. Uh, okay, we can do on screen first. The fact, okay, the fact that there was wrong on screen and wrong behind the scenes makes me wonder where in the hell fifteen million dollars came from. I mean, nineteen eighty four was a weird time. I'm, I that's all I'm gonna say. In this movie, to okay, one of the points that I will say in this movie's favor, the soundtrack is actually really damn good. Yeah. The songs they managed to get the rights to play, there's there's a montage where they go, there's not any other word to put it, uh, they go looting in a mall, and... They're shopping. There's just no one to pay. Yes. That's and pretty much the, the it, mindset. Like, they're just one, they're like, everybody's dead, but we can go shopping now. And they go. That's it. Soundtracked by Girls Just Want to Have Fun, which is actually pretty damn cool. Yes. This movie is very 80s. It has a very 80s feel. You will not watch this and mistake it for any other decade. <laughs> uh, you can't um, even watch this and mistake it for any other year. This movie lives and breathes 1983-84. Like, the songs that are played, the fashion, the socio-commentary, the vehicles, everything in this movie is 1983 to early 1984, and that's it. So, talking about... What went wrong? Um, the fact that you can actually watch this movie and take out entire sections and rearrange them into what turns out to be at least three different films with three different plots makes me think that somewhere in the writing room some papers got dropped or shredded or something. That's fair. There's not a lot of cohesion, and I was trying to look for some. The closest they come to is making references in the first 15 minutes of the movie that kind of, sort of, 
somewhat pay off in the last three damn minutes of the movie. There's a, lot not of, there's a lot of foreshadowing in the movie. The problem is, is the foreshadowing is very cloudy and it doesn't it doesn't enunciate itself well enough for you to recognize that certain things are important. And like I want to say that that's bad writing, but that's bad writing by modern standards. And I think that by a 1984 standards, it's not as bad. Again, that doesn't affect the score that we have to give it today, 25 years later. However, there is an agency of scientists that you never learn the name of that are a major player in the film and abduct children at the end of the film while they're looking for a cure to a specific condition. Now, did I just describe this movie or did I describe E.T.? Because you never find the name of the scientific organization in that one either. The one thing that I thought was interesting is that they have a logo and they make it very, very, they make it very obvious. They have a logo for this organization that is, I, I know there's a name for the type of maze. It, it's a circle maze. It is, it obviously has a beginning and an end, but it's designed to symbolize like multiple paths out it, it's some psychology thing that i can't remember the name of off the top of my head but i know i've seen it before at least in other horror games okay so i was thinking okay maybe they're going to start bringing in more like science heavy explanations to give more of a grounding to dust zombie comet thing oh that doesn't happen no, scientific explanations don't work. As a matter of fact, one of my biggest issues with the movie is that it doesn't follow its own internal logic. And the reason why I say that is they establish that whatever form of radiation this is, its bandwidths are blocked by being inside of something that is steel and thus being inside of a steel structure is why all of the people who are alive are alive. It also demonstrates that if you have partial contamination, your body doesn't immediately turn to dust. It just slowly starts to dehydrate and drives you insane and turns you into a zombie. I'm okay with those two points individually. Here's where they run into a problem. The reason why the scientific group is looking for a cure is someone forgot to close the air vents that lead outside of the building and that's how the radiation got in. Because the steel shutters on the air vents weren't closed. So the slim amount of radiation that came in through the air ducts and got into the superstructure of their facility is why all of the scientists are slowly dying and turning into zombies. Meanwhile, Hector Gomez was sleeping in the sleepover section of the back of his cab because he's a truck driver with only a curtain between him and the fucking windshield of the truck. So apparently either the windshield of his truck is made out of steel or the curtain that separates the bed area from the front of the truck is made out of steel 
there are steel curtains in Pittsburgh in 1984, but they're not <laughs> in trucks. You're welcome. Thank you. That was funny. So what are some of the parts that are somewhat coherent? Oh, video game is Tempest. I actually did not know that because I'm not familiar. But yeah, the game she plays in the very beginning is Tempest. It doesn't have anything to do with except at the very end of the movie. But yeah, that actually is a game that exists. Oh, I did not know that. Also, the video game. This annoyed the shit out of me. Nah. Ready? Do you remember how many times she had to replay the game, getting a score high enough to get the name that was in the number six slot off of the top ten list? Would have at least had to play six times and then another maybe four or five on top of that to push it off. Well, no, because no, all of the names were hers except for the one that was in the sixth slot. Mm. Yeah, that means... She had to beat that score four times because she doesn't have to beat her number one, two, three, four, or five score. She just needs to beat the six score. Whoever wrote this part doesn't play video games because they didn't understand that point. And she had to beat all, she literally says she had to beat her high score to get that number six score out of the top 10. That's not how lists work. No. It's not a case where if she had scored, you know, just above the number six score, whatever the hell that was, it wouldn't have just deleted that and then put her name in it. Sure, it would have, because it, it would have pushed it down to seven. And right. then she just had to beat that score again to push it down to eight. The way then, the movie depicts it, though, is that it was just deleted. It was just removed. She played once and it was it. No, no, no. She had to play, she had to beat her high score several times. Oh, she did? Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. She makes a point of saying she had to beat her high score to be able to move the number six score off the list. And like, that's why she was, that's what she did all night was playing the video game. Even though if she was playing the video game, she wouldn't have been in the steel box of the projection room, but also- That also has a hole in it. But I've also never known a projection room to be steel. They're usually bricks. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to ignore all that. We, there is so much we are ignoring because to go over it would take about three hours. Um, I mean, again, it's it's it, part of it is eighties were a hell of a drug. Um, <laughs> in the early eighties, there wasn't the same level of script cleansing that you have nowadays. Like nobody expected people to go over movies with fine tooth combs there was no home market so you didn't have to worry about a movie being watched four thousand times unless you had a projection machine you couldn't go frame by frame to try to find flaws movie making at that time didn't expect people to look at movies the way we look at movies today i'm not saying that that's an excuse I'm just saying that that's the reason why some of these things were. Why did the chicken cross the road? Well, to get to the other side. That's all the information you needed. You didn't need to understand the socioeconomic complex involved in chickens and roads in the 80s. You just set it up and you let it go on its merry way. You wound up the button in the back and then you let it go and it just waddled across on its own. That's the way movies were done. And that's not how they're done now. So like when you go back and look at something like this, all of a sudden, a lot of it just seems weird and awkward. One of the things that I think they were trying to do with this movie, in part because of the way the actors respond and in part because of some of the critical reviews of the day, there's a tension that would be in this movie if you're watching it in 1984 
that is totally not there in 2020. Or, I mean, wouldn't have been there in 2018 and fucking less in 2020. <laughs> and it's everyone is dead or they're zombies. And being a zombie is a terrible, terrible thing. And zombies are horrifying because zombies are like something that have only existed for the last six years, not the last 40. So zombies are a really terrifying concept to people. So you keep having the almost Schrodinger complex of I'm trying to find this person. Will they be dust or will they be zombie? And there's tension in that in 1984 that is absolutely not there in 2020. And that you bring that up because if you look at the title, you know, Night of the Comet, something coming out of the sky that causes this gigantic wave of disappearance death or just mutilation of everything that you knew wasn't this during some of the more i hate i hesitate to use the word dicey because it like it dumbs it down but that's the only word i can think of at the moment one of the dicier part parts of the cold war yeah there, there was definitely some red scare going on which i think is part of what they're alluding to with the sky color and the dust mm -hmm. like it's an allegory for nuclear threat, perhaps, question mark? Zombie being a allegory for surviving the fallout with radiation damage. Mm -hmm. Like, there are certain corollaries you can draw there. Mm -hmm. It does make it a, it makes it a little bit more intense, or it makes it a little bit more um, ominous <clears throat> when you look at it like that. But the movie also doesn't necessarily do a great, doesn't do a great job of taking a framework like that and pushing it front and center so you notice it. Right. It's very, it, it, it's very wishy-washy in that. Like, and honestly, part of it was even the way the movie was built at the time. Like, if you saw the original movie poster, it shows a bunch of people on the top, and then three quarters of the movie poster fades to black. And you see Catherine Mary Stewart, Regina Belmont, walking through a door in space. Like, it doesn't know what it's supposed to be. A lot of the previews build it more as a disaster movie. Because uh, remember, in the late 70s, early 80s, disaster movies were really, really big. Mm -hmm. So is this a disaster movie? Is it a horror movie? Is it a post-apoc movie? Is it a zombie flick? They kind of didn't know where it was supposed to sit. And on one hand, that's one of the things that I love about this movie because it's not cookie cutter. It's not super tropey that way. But on the other hand, it just gets really fucking hard to follow when you're trying to figure out what the tone and intent from the filmmakers was because is it a Red Scare allegory? Is it a disaster film? Is it a post-apoc film? Is it a coming of age? And the entire sitting is supposed to be representative of high school teenagers feeling completely removed from anything in society being able to understand them. Like, there are so many different ways that you can take this movie. And I think that's where the $14.4 million came from. Because I think so many people went to see this movie and it was just a fucking Rorschach test. And they all got different things from it. 
Mm-hmm. I can definitely say, and it's interesting. You bring up the 1984 thing, and I was just I was just looking um, this up. Is that one of the very first and biggest vibes I got from this movie within the first ten? Now nah, let's say five minutes was the last Starfighter, and I didn't understand why until I realized Starfighter came out in '84. Mm-hmm. Also prominently features a video game. Mm-hmm. Also stars Catherine Mary Stewart. Yes. Yeah. And I was like. Why am I why am I getting huge last Starfighter vibes? And I'm like, oh my god, that's the reason why this actually makes more sense. And I I can't help but wonder if like that's where they wanted to go. If they didn't want a cookie cutter the film that came out before this one did, with just a female protagonist, they decided to say, okay, let's make it a zombie post-apocalypse plot with a comet and people disappearing instead of an extraterrestrial threat and this movie is extremely hard to parse out (laughs) it's and again i think part of the reason why it's hard to parse out is we look at movies differently today like now when you look at a movie you first off you expect a trilogy second off you want the movie to for lack of a better term go somewhere okay this movie is if you were stranded on a desert island dot 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 remove desert island and put back in the city of los angeles but everyone except for five people are dead that's all this is this is a desert island movie this is a bottle movie that instead of bottling takes place in the entirety of the city of los angeles which is just weird very large bottle very very large bottle large enough to fit all of the sherman oaks galleria by the way if you recognize the mall in this movie, it's because the Sherman Oaks Galleria appears in Commando, it appears in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it appears in Crazy Stupid Love, it appears in Valley Girl, it appears in Chopping Mall, it appears in Terminator 2. The Sherman Oaks Galleria is a very popular filming spot because it's downtown Los Angeles, all of the studio crews can get there, and the mall is closed at night. So, at night, they make extra money by using it as a movie set. As you do. I mean, I can't imagine what studios will pay for the, you know, for a 12-hour overnight shoot. Right? I mean, and to not have to build a mall to shoot in and to have access to all of this. Also, the Sherman Oaks Galleria was only like two or three years old at the time. It was a cutting-edge brand new looking mall in the early 80s so it was a very popular shooting location but it's again, interesting that sorry. no go ahead go ahead no, no i just i because that, that one sequence was actually the first part of the movie i genuinely found entertaining and it took oh god it took an hour and a minute to actually get here yeah so one of the things that ends up happening is that when they go to the mall to do their shopping spree there's already a group of what we find out are slowly turning guys, like teenagers, punks, if you will, that are Stop already boys. there and that are watching him and are watching them and are waiting to make a move. Now, again, they came in with Mac 10s. These guys have, I think, like a 12 gauge, uh, another type of assault rifle. It, it's they're they're armed as well. 
they get to a point during the shootout, which again is the first part time I was genuinely entertained, where they capture uh, Sam, the uh, Reggie's sister, and say basically, if you don't come out, I'm gonna you know put a bullet in her head. Reggie comes out of an elevator and has one of their gang at gunpoint threatening to blow his head off, and the leader of this group, who's the most turned, I believe, basically says, "I can't let you." take one of my people as a hostage and he goes through this spiel which is supposed to be like psychologically mind fucking a little bit and he shoots his own guy in the chest and removes her leverage i mean it works he he yells at him you're crazy and i i timestamp this because again this is one of the best lines in the whole damn movie at one hour one minute and 19 seconds I'm not crazy. I just don't give a fuck. I'm not crazy. I just don't give a fuck. Great line. It really is. Oh, my gosh. And again, they get rescued because the aforementioned we don't know who they are SCP group. You know, they come in. They they shoot them. They free them. They take Reggie out because what? Okay, and this part was extremely confusing, so I'm going to try to piece this together. The group, and again, since this just happened last night, they have foreknowledge that this stuff is slow acting in certain conditions. So what they're trying to do is they, they're they taking survivors that they find or that they already had. They are basically cutting off brain function and using them as living blood cell manufacturing plants. Because what they're trying to do is synthesize a cure out of untainted blood, which doesn't necessarily require the person to be cognizant. It just requires them to have, you know, a beating heart and lungs and functioning like, you know, kidneys. And somebody that's in a medical coma is a hell of a lot easier to control than someone who isn't. So we come out with their, they're now knowing that there are more survivors. So two of them are children that they end up picking up. Reggie and her sister are alive and presumably uninfected, except Sam has been hinting at an itch on the side of her neck for a little while now, since about 40 minutes in, which is one of the telltale signs of slow degradation is skin problems. They also mentioned memory loss, which comes into play a lot later. And one of the things that they were never explicit, but a lot of times the people that are turning will call things cute. And they use that specific phrase a lot to describe Mm -hmm. Hector's character at one point, the children themselves. And basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to, they're, they're trying to synthesize a cure from all this blood before at least keep it from progressing as fast while they can find a cure. Again, all this in the span of maybe 12 hours i don't know how the hell they got that moving so fast but again this is never explained well the final it, conference- it does they, they do state that the in the beginning that the scientists expected that there would be a problem due to the radiation of the comet so they were sequestered away someplace safe and you see them like closing the doors on their warehouse yada 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 so you know that they were in a facility that was separate and secure they never really go into how they're the only ones. Again, had this movie gotten sequels, I think you would have found out more about not only them, but other groups that also had that information who were also now surviving in the post-Comet wasteland. I mean, that's kind of headcanoning, but it doesn't make any sense for only scientists and these four people to survive, especially because in the last scene of the movie, you find one other new random survivor. So obviously there are more survivors out there to be found, question mark. We've watched Walking Dead. We know how that works. Equal baits, but the soul... This is interesting that you bring that up. 
what I believe was the sole reason for throwing in this particular survivor is Reggie is extremely vocal about the fact that she's pissed someone dared broach her top 10 score on Tempest in the very beginning of the film. And the initials that were left were DMK. Those were the only thing she does. I didn't catch that. There's no one she knows. Oh my god. There's no one she's ever heard of. She's just pissed that she's just pissed that this is the person who's dared encroach her top six ranking or whatever. So, at the very end, when they're demonstrating how you never cross the lights before it changes, blah 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 blah, they're they being the two kids that they rescue, Hector and Reggie, have formed a little family unit. Sam's the eighteen-year-old, you know, valley girl outlier who is lamenting that she doesn't have a guy. He almost gets run over by a guy in a Mercedes who has 23 of them because no one's watching the damn car lots at this point. And he almost runs her over. He comes back and apologizes. I'm really, really sorry. He's immediately smitten because it's a guy about her own age. Oh, and she's immediately really nice smitten because it's another guy. Like, okay, let's another guy full stop. Last, last, uh, last man on earth gets laid. That That's really where we're at. <laughs> so... She gets into the car, he offers to take her for a ride, apologizes for nearly running her over. Reggie, being the big mom type, or aunt, as they call her, says, you know, what's his name? You know, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, well, what's your name? She's like, and he goes, Danny Mason Keener. And as he's showing, as he's zooming away, you see on his vanity plate the initials DMK. The last damn survivor that they have found that is a man is the guy who was fucking with Reggie's flawless top 10. I didn't even get that until you mentioned it. Oh, see, I, I am so glad we talked about this movie because <laughs> I have never made that connection until now. Mm -hmm. And oh, that's, that's, oh, that is, that is, that is lovely. That is. There's a few things, there's a few times the movie does do that. They do take a plot point that you think is just going to be a throwaway sentence, phrase, explanation, whatever. And they do bring it back. It's clumsy, but they do yeah. mention how the steel wall conversation in the very beginning is what saved them later on, you know? They, they mention they, how Kelly Maroney's character, Sarah Belmont, has really bad skin. She has uh, acne, she has dermatitis, and she gets medicine from a pharmacist all the time. It's actually a plot point they go into. What are you going to do? You don't have any more of your medication. That's an hour before she starts itching and they think that she's infected because itching is a sign of being infected and she just keeps going no it's just my skin i always itch i always have bad skin it has nothing to do with the comet and again it's one of those plot points of is she isn't she that i think in 1984 builds tension and in 1984 you go oh that's really creative writing and nowadays you just go oh We've seen this for 25 years. It's not impressive. And I do sometimes wonder if we honestly don't have a choice but to be a little bit harsh because we are seeing it through a 30-year lens. But by the same token, some of these, especially like the tightening up of the overall narrative, that's something you would have expected out of a film in the 40s, for God's sakes. I mean, there's always so much leeway you can give 
something for being a film in the mid 1980s mm-hmm. at least at least in my opinion the one thing i did notice that was kind of like did they have to end the movie with a family unit type of thing they did the same thing in children of the corn countless other films where like they find kids and they pseudo adopt them after some horrible thing has happened which should by all rights traumatically fuck them up but the kids are always okay because it's it's an allegory for normalcy the reason why you end a horror movie or a disaster movie showing a paternal unit, a maternal unit, and 2.5 sibling units is it establishes that idea. Again, you and I have had this conversation before that one of the reasons why I love horror movies that most people don't understand is horror movies are about hope and overcoming adversity. Because it doesn't matter how bad the killer is, it doesn't matter if they're an alien, it doesn't matter if they're a supernatural force, it doesn't matter if they're an unstoppable juggernaut, it doesn't matter if they're a serial killer that has killed 26 people and got away with it, no matter how bad the bad guy is in a horror movie, some dumb, average, random schmuck still has a chance. It reinforces the idea that no matter how bad your life is angled against you, You've still, got a, you've still got a dog in this fight. You've still got a puncher's chance of being able to make it. Sure, Jason's going to kill 16 out of 18 kids in this movie. You know what? Two of them are going to live. So no matter how bad life gets, you've still got a chance of trying to make it out the other end. And horror movies do that warm, cuddly ending a lot, often than with the cliffhanger jump scare killer isn't dead watch the sequel at the end for marketing purposes but they do this thing where horror movies come around the corner and they show you that even after horrors life goes on so the family unit at the end of the movie is the life goes on sequence that makes that makes a little more sense that's a little more justifiable and again you only ever usually see it in like horror movies um horror movies and disaster movies it's Mm -hmm. disaster movies all the time there's always one person that's in the disaster their partner romantic conquest whatever isn't and they're reunited when the thing is over or they're both in it together and the only reason they get through it is because they get through it together it's it's a very common storytelling device to allow your audience to leave the theater with warm fuzzies no matter what hell you put them through for and through 77 minutes to three hours. That does make a lot more sense to put in that context, actually. Yeah. Um, one of the other bits that I thought was interesting is that they initially say that, you know, they tell Reggie that her sister is dead because they, you know, they thought she was turned, so... They left the one scientist, who ironically was turning herself, behind a euthanizer. She doesn't. She just sedates her. And they come in right as the two scientists, two female scientists, who are also showing signs of turning, one of which is memory loss. And, like I said, that cute ditziness where they, they don't, they're not really taking it seriously. Um, they come in right as they're about to basically put these children under with nitrous. And then, uh, you know, turn them into more, you know, living blood donor farms. This is when she also finds out that her sister's not dead, and that's touching as well. One of the little girls, uh, the little girl uh, pipes up and says, they said if we breathe that stuff, we'd get to go visit Santa Claus. 
And what they end up doing is they tie the two female scientists to a bed and put the masks on their face and turn the nitrous up. And they leave a note for the other scientists to find saying, going to visit Santa. Yeah, it was nice. I, I also kind of appreciate, in hindsight, again, remember, this is really early on in the Valley Girl trope, mm-hmm. the radiation that turns you into a zombie, the conditions for you being turned into a zombie are you become excessively concerned about the condition of your skin, you become ditzy, you lose your memory, and you think things are cute. In short... The radiation turns you into a valley girl before it kills you. Damn. And the two lead characters are both valley girls, which is why they're not sure if they're infected or not, because there's no change. They started there, so we don't know if they're infected or not, because they were already there. I... Like, in a modern movie, they would really hammer that at you. There would be a scene where two scientists are like, are they infected or are they not? How the fuck do I know? They're valley girls. They were, they, three months ago, they were ditzy. If they're infected or not, they're still gonna be. We're not gonna know with what we know are symptoms. Like, in a modern movie, that scene would get hammered at you. And yet, in this one, they just, they, they just set it there. Because it was so much more of a social trope at that point. It was so more common, especially in California culture, that they didn't need to reinforce it. They didn't have mm-hmm. to come back on the joke. Like, 30 you, years you, away from there, you got it. <laughs> yeah, 30 years removed from that joke, it doesn't lay the same way. But at the time, I guarantee you, everyone got that. Nowadays, you watch it, and you're like, it's not until you really stop and think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, they really wouldn't be able to tell, would they? No, no, not a bit. I mean, what else is there to say? That's basically the entire movie and all its excessively convoluted, very hard to follow, the glory, question mark. Who would like this? If you're a fan of 80s anything, and I mean anything 80s, it doesn't have to be horror, it's, it's 80s. 80s full stop, you will like this movie. (laughs) 80s fashion, 80s music, 80s culture, 80s motif, 80s cars, 80s hairstyles, 80s anything. It is up and down this movie, left and right, most definitely. I'll throw this one at you because this is a piece you probably don't know. So here's a little Mm -hmm. nugget for you. Okay. If you are a fan of Joss Whedon's work, you should watch this movie. And the reason is, in multiple interviews, Joss Whedon has said that this movie was his inspiration to write Buffy the Vampire Slayer because it was the first film he had ever seen where he saw normal female stereotypical characters who had to break out of those stereotypical molds to become femme fatales in order to succeed. And in fact, his original treatment for Buffy the Vampire Slayer wasn't a vampire slayer, and it involved a zombie apocalypse. It wasn't until later versions that, and 
the fact that vampires were coming back in vogue and zombies were sort of already getting played out, even though it would take 30 more years and they're still still getting played out. But he changed it to make what we now know as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, which then got changed again to make Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV series. But if you're a fan of Joss Whedon's work and you want to see the things that inspired his thought processes as a filmmaker, oddly enough, you have to watch this film. And you can actually see it. If you look back in that context and then you watch the character of Samantha Belmont, I still can't get over that last name, I swear to God. You see it. Like, you see exactly the blonde hair, the mannerisms, the vapidness. And then she turns around and pulls out a Mac 10 and shoots people with it. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's very much a Joss Whedon-type character. And that's because this is where he... This is one of those things that informed his vision. So it's definitely something you got to watch. If you are a fan of post-apocalypse-style movies, like not the action element of Mad Max, but the survival element of Mad Max, I also think this would be a good movie for you to watch. Because it is very much that, you know, stranded on a desert island, dot, dot, dot. Just the desert island happens to be downtown Los Angeles. But there's that element in this movie, most mm. definitely all the way through. You're a survivor. You're the last of your kind. What are you going to do? Mm. And it's why no, I wish there would have been more movies for this series, because you can kind of see that they took an hour, hour and a half to set up where they wanted this franchise to go. But it never does anything. Because there's never any other movies, because according to the writer-director, Tom Eberhardt, when they started working on the sequel, immediately following this going to theaters, he started working on a sequel in January of 1985. Yes. And absolutely no one could decide who owned what, who owned which characters, who owned the names of different elements of the film. It was a big mess, and it would take years for them to work out who owned the rights to what, even so far as to allow the movie to be released on VHS, let alone a sequel. And by the time they finally had the rights worked out, he just no longer had any interest in continuing the story. He was already working on other projects in the mid in the early to mid 90s it was 10 years later he had moved on from this world so what was the holdup specifically that was preventing it from being released on vhs because that's usually like the first things studios tend to sprint to as after after market well sources of income part of the problem was in 1988 when this movie would have been coming out on vhs because remember there was a much longer draw time back then madonna was no longer on her first album and had in fact blown up huge and when this movie was written rights for music were garnered for box office release not for home video release so they had to renegotiate all of those contracts Jeez. and like you're saying this movie has a soundtrack that plays like you know I Heart 1984. Like, mm -hmm. the move, the music in this movie is no joke. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the songs would have been very expensive to secure the rights to, again, in the 80s or 90s. So it took a lot of work for that to come around. There was also questions about whether he owned the rights to it, whether Lane and Crawford owned the rights to Night of the Comet and the stuff within it. All kinds of problems. A lot of people have been very closed-lipped about 
about it and like a lot of it seemed to be tried to be handled out of court and behind closed doors as much as possible mm -hmm. but we know from interviews that Everhart has had over the years where he where he has been asked why there wasn't a sequel or why he didn't do the follow-up mm -hmm. and he's always like rights issues and timing and the availability of the talent that were in the film but mostly rights issues. And he really wouldn't go into it much more beyond that. Legally, he might not have been able to. Yeah, again, it's, guys, if you've never signed an NDA, trust me, they're, they're, they're weird. There are still projects that I can't, that I don't know if I'm allowed to tell you whether or not I even have an NDA for the project, let alone what I did or did not do involved in that project. It's, rights are weird and they're, 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 they're things that you don't ever want to cross because the amount of money that is, you are you owe somebody else if you mess those up is ridiculous so who's to say why it never happened all we know is that there were massive rights issues some of them involving the production house some of them involving the producers and it just it it never materialized even though there was talk of a sequel even though there was discussion of a tv show based on the four characters because that was a big thing that happened also in the mid to late 80s was a lot of early 80s movies got rebooted into sitcoms. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So there was talk of a TV show. And again, it just it got nixed due to uh, ownership rights confusion. So they were never Gosh. able to follow up on anything. Man, if you're a contract lawyer for a movie studio, you'll never have to worry about making run again. No, no, not not at all. It's it's weird. Um. I mean, messy is more the term I would use. Yeah, I, it's there. And like, eventually you just get used to it. Like, I mean, and I, I haven't had that many big ones, but I have had NDAs with 20th, 20th Century Fox. I have had NDAs with Disney for various properties that I've worked on in the past. And I can tell you that literally the NDA that I had to work on a project for 20th Century Fox was 19 pages long. Jesus. And the property that I worked on isn't even a con... Well, I mean, nowadays it's technically a pretty convoluted one, but it was for something that was Alien versus Predator related. And not only did we not have... Not only did we have a, a huge NDA about what we could do and what we couldn't do, any single thing we invented, any character names, any place, any location, any anything, every single thing had to get validated by Fox before you could go forward. You want to have two characters, their names need to be vetted. You want to have them meet at a cafe, the name of the cafe needs to be vetted. And so does the name of the waitress that they have at the cafe. You have to vet the type of vehicle that the character drives up there in. Like, everything has to be double-checked because rights lawyers are really, really specific when it comes to these kinds of things. And I mean, part of the reason why they do that now is to avoid issues like this, where who owns this, who doesn't? What can we do going forward? Well, now everything is much, it is more convoluted, but it also no longer has loopholes. So, yeah. I mean, could, could be good, could be bad, depending on how you're interpreting it. It's, it, it's the industry. It is what it is. So, anyway, at DWTF, we use a rather unique scoring system, which we lovingly know as the DWTF-meter. On the DWTF-meter, 
every film scores a one because let's face it, you shouldn't watch most of these films. However, the important thing is one out of what? One out of one is a missed or misunderstood classic that everyone needs to see. One out of two is a great film which has a major flaw in it. One out of three is a good film that has several flaws all the way down to a one out of ten, which is a movie that we never, ever, ever want to bother talking about again. So, Tia, would you like to go first with Night of the Comet? Or would you like me to go first? I will go ahead and go first. Okay. This is a really hard movie to score, at least for me, because there are sections where I genuinely thought they had something, and I wish that whatever needed to happen in order to make it more tight, apparent, whatever you want to call it, I just, I wish something had happened to where it had been more of a cohesive viewing experience because the pieces that were there were really, really good. But as I say, I can't rate the movie that we should have gotten. I have to rate what's in front of us. And as a horror film, as an 80s film, as a time capsule in the history of cinema that is 1984, I have to give this a one out of... I'm going to say one out of five. It is very middle of the road. It is watchable. It will hold your attention for 90-some-odd minutes. But if you're looking for a good, tight storyline, if you're looking for one of those hidden diamond-in-the-rough things that came out of the 80s a lot, you're not going to find that here. It is a very passable film, and that's the highest I can give it. Okay. I think all of that is very fair. I also agree that I think this movie is very hard to score. And part of it is because Tom Eberhardt is a phenomenal writer and a phenomenal director who went on to do great things, but this is not one of them. I think that it's hard to score because this is the height of Catherine Mary Stewart's career. And I would have loved to have seen her do more things through the late 80s or into the 90s and be remembered as one of the great starlets of that era. But it just didn't happen because by the mid to late 80s, Hollywood went a different way. And what she was offering was no longer what they were buying. So her career kind of dries up and she gets stuck in, you know, weird comedy movies and never really going anywhere and just becoming kind of a character actress. It's hard because this is a very early movie in the career of Kelly Maroney, who I've said is one of my favorite horror actresses. I love all of the movies she's in, and I wish she had been in more, especially in the 80s and early 90s, when her career really could have taken off. And so there's a lot of good things in this. I, I, I think if you're a Star Trek fan, you have to look at this as like one of those lost episode kind of things for Robert Beltran just because this was a starring role that helped set up his career even 20 years later and without this opportunity does someone else play Chakotay like it's it's just weird to figure out how those dominoes would work okay. I think that for a $700,000 budget filming in downtown Los Angeles this movie does phenomenal things I think this movie needed a million dollar budget yeah <laughs> It's, there are so many places where this movie is good. 
and so many places where it's not. It's a product of its time. This is a film from the early 80s and a lot of movies from that era, you just watch them and you're just like, oh, the fucking pacing. Because that was right when we were transitioning. The pacing of the way movies were done in the late 60s and through the 70s was entirely different than the way things were done in the late 80s through the 90s and into the 2000s. Your audience went in expecting a different tone, expecting a different meter, expecting a different cycle, and using a different formula. So this is like right at the end before cinema turned that corner. And if they had done something avant-garde and used the new formula rather than the tried and true formula, I think we would think of this movie completely differently. This movie was cinematically, you know, critically acclaimed to some degree when it came out. And then after a box office run where it made 2000% of its budget, it disappears for a decade. And nobody sees it until like 1998. Like it disappears for almost 15 years off the face of the fucking planet during the height and the boom of the horror genre. One of the movies that should have been a franchise leading the charge for big budget B movies instead all but becomes a footnote in history that all but for the grace of God, we never would have gotten a chance to see again. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just insane. I know it's not a one in three movie. I know it's not a one in six movie. Is it one in four? Is it really that good? Is it one in five? Is it really that lackluster? I mean, ask me tomorrow. My score is going to change. I, I really <laughs> don't know where this one should fall. One out of four, one out of five. I mean, take your pick, whichever one you want. If you like if you are the absolute trekker that needs to see everything that all trek actors have ever trekked in the past check this movie out if you love 80s check this movie out if you want a if you want a zombie flick don't watch this film cuz there are <laughs> 5 of them and that's it and legitimately if you want the zombie version of this movie it's not an hour and 35 minutes long it's 17 minutes first 10 minutes first 10 minutes last seven that's all your zombies that's it it's all you need um and honestly those bookends tell you most of the story too like it's just that that that's all it is i don't know i i'm gonna give it a one out of four i i i can't i i can't give it a one out of five i think it's a better movie i think it's a more entertaining movie than a one out of five uh i absolutely agree it is not a one out of three but i think on a good day, I can make an argument for one out of four. I mean, just based on Kelly Maroney's smile alone, I can argue this movie should get a one out of four. That's reasonable. That's fair. And and what's sad is that you actually, the way that you describe her, she should be known along the same lines as Linnea Quigley, for God's sake. She really and... was. Like, she was, again, she was very much like a Valley version of, you know, Linnea Quigley. And everybody knows who she is. And everybody knows, you know, a dozen movies that she was in. And and most of those movies are pretty bad, but some of them are all-time hits. And you look at Night of the Comet, and you look at Chopping Mall. They were, I mean, wrong place, wrong time, just short of being all-time hits. In another universe, nobody remembers who Trash is, but everybody remembers Sarah Belmont. It's all I'm saying. Like, 
And by the way, I love Linnea Quigley. Having actually met Linnea Quigley on two separate Aww. occasions, she is such a sweetheart. Oh, she is such a dear. She's a she wonderful. Seems like the story. She's like really gracious to her fans and really pleasant to talk with. She seems like she it. is a wonderful, wonderful person. And the the two times I interacted with her, either she is a wonderful person or she is a phenomenal actress that has hid her disdain for every for life because she was just phenomenal to 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 be with. I don't know. Like this is one of those movies where it's just you just look at it and you're like, oh. Three or four changes. Three or four changes is all it takes for this to be a been great... so much more. Yeah. And and, and and that's that's the tragedy of Night of the Comet is that it reached for the brass ring and it touched it. It just couldn't wrap its fingers around it. And it was and if they had gotten a sequel, you know the sequel would have. Much like so many of the horror movies that we remember franchises of today, the first film is never the best. It's always the second or third where they finally click and they get the franchise. And now we know what this is supposed to be. And now we're going to go on for another 10 movies after the third. And, you know, 14 movies down the line, everyone's going to go, well, the first two were kind of okay. But if you could make it through the third where they did some weird shit, and then in the fourth, from the fourth on, this franchise is amazing. Night of the Comet that never really had that. Night of the Comet didn't last long enough to have a Halloween 3. Night of the Comet didn't last long enough to have a Freddy's Dead. It didn't last long enough to have Jason be replaced by another killer in his own franchise. Like, this could have been one of those, but all we ever have is what this could have been and we have one movie which we're lucky honestly lucky to have at this point if you're interested in catching this one at the time of recording it is available for free in its entirety with ads on youtube this movie is quite honestly often available different places so look around if you're interested in seeing what we talked about you'll probably be able to find it if you're familiar with the movie and you want to hit us up and, you know, lament, share your thoughts, please hit us on Twitter. Leave a tag under this on our Patreon page because you can write on the Patreon page. Even if you're not a patron, contact us at DWTF at mail, uh, DWTF mailbag at gmail.com. I mean, you know, if you want to talk about what could have been with this movie with me, trust me, I can do that with you all day. So that's it. That is that is Night of the Comet. Oh. We only got the one night, and that was plenty. <laughs> yep, and then we got to wait 65 million years for the next one. So once again, thank you to our patrons for selecting this film. Our specific patron shout-out for this movie is Thomas Belt. So thank you very much, Thomas, for your support. Uh, if you are interested in being a patron and voting on this month's movie and all movies going forward at patreon.com slash don'twatchthisfilm, we have... and $20 tiers. Even the $1 tiers can help vote on what movie we are picking for next month. So if you are listening to this at time of release and you are really excited about any of those movies that we have just mentioned, Forbidden World, Shadow Builder, Teeth, or Birdemic 2, go ahead, drop a dollar, vote on the movie, try to decide, you know, what we should have to watch next month. Even $1 donations are very appreciative. They help us be able to watch some of these movies that aren't available for free and be able to continue bringing you guys this podcast. So again, to all of our patrons, 
thank you so very much. No, absolutely. We honestly couldn't do it without you guys. And if money happens to be a little scarce for you, that is perfectly okay. We understand. Promise. We also have a really um, active Twitter feed at Don't Watch This F. We share patron polls for uh, things to vote on as reminders. We share you know what's what in the horror world stuff that's up and coming adam could not talk more about pg psycho gorman if you held a gun to his head but other than that you will also find various tidbits things that we put out in terms of promotion so if you have a social media but don't necessarily have a lot of money any sort of retweet like comment anything like that will help boost engagement which can be as valuable if not more so than actual money because it gets more ears to listen to our podcast and that's why we do it so thank you guys so much for that as well i think that about does it for this next month is april and oh april yeah that thing we have we have some gems in the pipeline for april there's there, there's certainly no holidays in April that have any movies based on them. Certainly not. There's certainly no holiday tie-ins that you can do for the beginning of April or the middle of April. We'll just leave it at that. We will absolutely leave we'll it at that. We'll see if you that. guys can figure out what those movies are. Because I guarantee you, the movie for the third week of April... To, to, no, you just have no fucking clue. So that's just going to be insane when we get there. But until Oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> until then... Thank you all very much for listening. I hope you have been entertained by the show and that you keep tuning in. If you have liked what you've listened to, please tell a friend. You know, again, not all support is monetary. In fact, sometimes the most important support isn't. If you've liked this show, if you have a friend that you think would like it as well, throw the feed at them, suggest that they listen. We have a backlog of episodes at this point. If you want more, there's at this point already almost 10 hours of additional material available on the Patreon for backers at the $10 and higher level. But certainly, even without that, you've got two months worth of episodes at this point. So go back and listen to the back catalog. Tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter, wherever, whenever. Trust me, we'll be more than happy to talk to you. But until then... I am W. Adam Clark. My name is Tia, and until you hear from us the next time... Don't watch this film.